in the first Justice trade paperback, an introductory piece was written in which Superman considered his fellows in the Justice League. Superman noted of Wonder Woman, Diana is one of the Amazons of myth. For some, slavery can breed hatred, but not for her. Diana's love of freedom is so great that she fights for it at all costs, using all manner of Amazonian weaponry at her disposal. Diana's perfect. She doesn't know it, and that just makes her more perfect. From Bruce Wayne's private files in the Bat Computer. Her name is Princess Diana. Sometimes she hides her true nature and identity, if such a thing were possible, under the name Diana Prince. By combat and contest, she was chosen to represent an island nation of Amazon women who claim to be descendants of the Greek gods. She was one of the first members of the Justice League of America, and lives not to fight, but to work for peace. It is a mistake many make to categorize her as a warrior. She is far more than her training and skills suggest. Evidence of her divine lineage includes a number of gifts, like those in myth, given by the gods. She carries a golden lasso. It is unbreakable, and those confined by it are compelled to speak the truth. Its nature, by my inspection, is not scientific, but mysterious. I can find no reason for its properties. She wears bulletproof bracelets that she uses to defend herself, and has an invisible jet that allows her to travel the globe undetected, even by radar or heat-seeking tracking devices. Some have suggested that she is a perfect woman, and it is easy to see why popular speculation would see her as a possible mate for Superman. But I do not believe such a pairing ever to be possible. She understands too well the role she has chosen. She knows, unlike many in the League itself, that we cannot risk loved ones. They could become targets, our vulnerabilities. Wonder Woman, Spirit of Truth was a 2001 tabloid format special edition by Alex Ross and Paul Dini. It began with a recap of Wonder Woman's origin as narrated by her mother, Hippolyta. Then the story picks up in modern times, with Wonder Woman defeating a terrorist cell who had taken government officials captive in what appears to be a Middle Eastern or Southern Asian country. Wonder Woman then disappears into her invisible jet, which is only ever really seen as a portal through which Diana disappears. She continues crusading for justice around the world. Street crime continues to be a problem, though most rank-and-file crooks now seem to accept that I'm no pushover. They usually surrender without much struggle. The worst criminals are still the ones who operate under the guise of respectability, such as the slimy manufacturer who pays off a safety inspector. Never mind that one fire could wipe out his business, and the poor souls toiling in his sweatshop, or the soldiers hoping to make big money by leading so-called swordsmen on an endangered species hunt. Of course, there's the usual cadre of high-tech thieves and costume troublemakers. Athena knows there's a never-ending stream of them, all desperate, all defiant, and all ultimately doomed by their own manias. Then there are the accidents and disasters, like the big train wreck earlier this week. I know the victims are grateful for any assistance, but I couldn't tell you which shook them up more, the accident itself or the sight of an Amazon holding up one of the cars. Still, to a frightened infant, a gentle hand and a comforting voice are always welcome, regardless of where they come from. Needing comfort of her own, Wonder Woman returned to Themyscira to reflect on her mission in man's world and to take solace in her paradise island. Diana tries to have a conversation about her mission with her mother, but after so many centuries apart from man's world, Hippolyta is not understanding or very compassionate about the prejudices and contrary philosophies of the outside world. In an Asian country, there's a march for civil rights. Wonder Woman tries to broker a peace, but it is made clear by the government officials that her presence is not wanted or will not be tolerated. Further, tanks begin to literally roll over the country's own citizens. Diana lifts a tank to save the life of one young woman, but is shocked by the fear and rejection from the woman that she had benefited. With that, she turned and ran. The girl had seemed to be only as an unwelcome intrusion into her world, a bizarre creature every bit as threatening as the tank that nearly killed her. Once again, I was mystified at how someone's perception of me could be so wrong and my kindly effort so completely misinterpreted. In a Muslim country, a dictator is shuffling his people around as a human shield against outsider intervention to his chemical plants, missile bases, etc. 
Diana flies her plane out to inspect one of the villages. I set about asking the townspeople if they knew anything about the displaced villagers. I tried to assure them that I was not an agent of the police or the military, and that any information they shared with me would be held in the strictest confidence. Addressing them in their own language with a flawless local dialect just made them more fearful of me. In their eyes, I was a brazen symbol of confrontation. I was a foreigner come to provoke them and to make a hostile situation worse. A crowd, men and women alike, began throwing stones. Though I am used to my traditional attire, it only made the clash of our cultures more painfully evident. I could not blame them for lashing out. I had come seeking truth, and they gave me theirs by the handful. I left humbled and heartbroken. Diana then flew to Metropolis, where she met Clark Kent upon the Daily Planet building. Clark then took her to dinner, mansplaining the concept of secret identities and why he would choose to live two lives, incognito in a mostly white outfit with a headscarf and sunglasses. Diana waded through a protest among white people in a western country. A man pulls a shotgun and is swiftly disarmed by the Amazon, but the crowd expresses shock and fear at her presence. In the Amazon, in plain clothes, Diana quietly disables construction equipment that's causing deforestation. In yet another country, Diana serves as a healthcare professional, tending to children dismembered by mines. Then she joins a crew that sweeps and disarms such mines. She briefly serves as a desert soldier, then dons a burqa, and is taken as a captive, becoming part of one of those human shield projects. She is treated with kindness and respect by people who perceive her as a fellow Muslim. But soon she disrobes and attacks their captors. The tyrant's army is on the run. The hostages are safe. I make short work of the barriers. They need further encouragement to reclaim their freedom. My presence is frightening to them. There are a few furtive nods and whispered blessings. But for the most part, the hostages leave in silence. I neither expected nor wanted anything more. My real victory is in the lives that have been spared. For where there is life, there is the chance for new ideas, tolerance, and understanding. That's triumph enough for any warrior. The story ends with Diana Prince in a major metropolitan city. Wearing sunglasses and a smart black suit, she walks up to a payphone. I tell Clark he was right. From this perspective, the view is less traumatic, but many times more inspiring. He responds with a knowing chuckle and an offer to buy dinner the next time we meet. Clark has no idea what an inspiration he is to me and the others. I will always be Wonder Woman when the need arises, and I'm sure that before long, the fates will conspire to create another dire situation that only the Prince of the Amazons can handle. Until then, a new role awaits me. That of an ordinary woman without title or trappings, who strives to do her best, armed with only a loving heart and a deep belief in the sometimes hidden, but always inherent, goodness of the people around her. The better to earn a place for myself in man's, in the human world. This story is dedicated to all people throughout the world who fight for truth and freedom. I did not particularly care for the series of tabloid format books Alex Ross and Paul Dini produced for the 60th anniversaries of Superman, Batman, Captain Marvel, and Wonder Woman. All these heroes fought social ills in their earliest adventures, but they did so in fanciful stories with simplistic solutions intended to uplift children in the post-depression era. They were not dry, lengthy, depressive tracts on the relative ineffectiveness of costumed crusaders placed in complex, realistic situations trotted out for expensive boutique purchases of middle-aged men. I might have deigned to buy the first ever Wonder Woman solo tabloid ever produced, but given that this was the only volume of the four that felt compelled to guest star another superhero, it isn't really a solo story after all, is it? I don't feel Paul Dini quite captures Diana's voice, and the story overall offers only a faint echo of her character. I like the international scope for mission here, the manner in which Ross conveys the invisible jet, and the simple fact that Diana Prince's identity is given play. 
On the other hand, Diana very pointedly only assumes that identity in imitation of Clark Kent at his suggestion with open obeisance to his man wisdom. I also had issues with Ross's rendition of Wonder Woman, specifically her enormous breasts and tiny waist. I try not to see Wonder Woman as a sexual being, and even in her more cheesecakey comics, her tendency to look like an action figure rather than an actual lady helps on that front. When Ross paints all of her curves and hips and dimples in a realistic fashion while wearing her classic costume, I'm suddenly made very aware of the validity of criticisms leveled against her near nudity that I usually try to defend her against. Suddenly I'm in favor of skirts and loincloths. Further, Ross often chooses problematic angles that make her butter or bust the central image in a panel, which runs counter to the more wholesome old-school approach he's known for. Ross's tendency to cast his friends in roles and paint them photorealistically means I don't recognize the character or the rendition is inconsistent from image to image. The worst sample of this for me is Hippolyta, who is wearing a dull, stripped-down approximation of her Golden Age outfit and wearing a face I can only acknowledge as Diana's mother because the words on the page tell me that's who it is. Another thing that bugged me a lot is that Diana is so anti-diplomatic and westernized in this project. She twice appears in next to nothing bearing the colors and iconography of the United States of America, but can't seem to understand why deeply religious and socially conservative Muslims in isolated regions would be offended by her presence. Also, she receives the warmest receptions in the Eurocentric environments, while the more ethnic countries are fearful, aggressive, and ignorant. It fairly reeks of a colonial mentality and the assumption of Western superiority from a character with Mediterranean origins herself. This is only aggravated by her portrayal as a white messiah to these poor, impoverished brown people who have no conception of finding superheroes within their own culture and are often seen running, screaming from her like frightened tribesmen in a Victorian jungle adventure. Never mind the part where Diana refers to herself as having a flawless command of a dialect, which is not the kind of compliment a non-narcissistic, reliable narrator applies to oneself. Essentially, the whole story is about Wonder Woman's lack of confidence and vision for her course of action, which is restored through the guidance of not her mother, not her gods or her supporting cast, but of Superman. This is not in keeping with the core principles of her creation in comics and betrays Ross and Dini's ignorance of the seminal works of the character. I find there's a common malady in superhero comics, which is especially true for Wonder Woman, that fans turn creators know their favorite universe, but not necessarily individual characters. You get a peripheral view of a figure from a team book or an event and you feel you know a given character well enough to write for them, where in reality it's a copy of a caricature displaced from their normal setting and structures. It's hard to see a book that sets aside Hippolyta as a mentor in favor of Kal-El of Krypton and also fails to feature Steve Trevor at a candy or actually any other figures from Wonder Woman stories as a valid, desirable, or substantial Wonder Woman story itself. Which is why I borrow the World's Greatest Superheroes hardcover collection for free out of the library and refuse to financially support this sort of trivializing would-be spectacle. Trekker Talk a fan podcast devoted to the adventures of 23rd century bounty hunter Mercy St. Clair from the pages of Trekker Comics by creator, writer, and artist Ron Randall. I'm Darren. And I'm Ruth. We'll be discussing the stories, characters, and art in this excellent retro sci-fi adventure series, as well as having side conversations about other areas of fandom. We hope you'll join us as we travel from the dangerous back streets of New Gallif to the depths of outer space and everywhere in between. Trekker Talk is available at podbean.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. Find us at trekkertalk.com. From Bruce Wayne's private files in the bat computer, it is a curse to be raised among the wealthy. When I consider who I might have been, who I might have become had things been different, I am almost grateful for this life I live, not for what happened to make me what I am, but for what I may have been saved from. Priscilla Rich was raised with all the advantages one could hope for, all the advantages I was born with. Her wealth made her petty and vain, 
and susceptible to the madness common to those who are raised with delusions of societal importance. The very existence of Wonder Woman drove Rich to seek out a means to elevate herself above the Amazon ambassador. Soon, Rich embraced the belief that she could be possessed by the spirit of a cheetah, a spirit which would manifest itself when she clothed herself in the animate skin. If she is indeed insane, the law claims that she cannot be held accountable for her actions. Still, the law often fails to uphold justice. Cheetah has been driven further into this identity by her continued defeats by Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman herself has a strange compassion for this enemy, wishing to free her from the demon skin she wears. It is not unlike, I suppose, my hope that the demons that have so scarred Harvey Dent can once and for all be exercised. Missiles streak through the skies, striking major cities the world over, killing everything in their eruptions wake. In Metropolis, Superman barely saved Lois Lane before setting her somewhere safe, except no place was safe, and Superman's girlfriend was soon no more. The Man of Steel called on his super friends. Wonder Woman, holding back a wall from collapsing on children, answered, I hear you, Superman. The same thing's happening in Rome. I don't know. I don't. The amazing Amazon's legs began to turn into stone, and the malady continued upward, until her face was a mass of fissures. Here, help me, Superman? Diana died first among her fellows, her smoldering corpse still leveraged against the wall. An omniscient commentator criticized the hero's performance as the earth itself perished. Some might say I'm being unfair. The mankind molded you into the beings you are. We made you into gods, like a potter would a piece of clay. You did not claim this for yourself, but I ask you, what were reasonable men to do in your presence? Priscilla Rich awoke from her nightmare, nude in a luxurious circular bed. Her twin cheetah companions unstirred in the penthouse suite they shared. Rich also shared the dream. Each of her compatriots in the Legion of Doom troubled by their nocturnal vision. Action would have to be taken to save all of humanity from the coming failure of the Justice League of America. A Wonder Woman conference was being held at the Meredith Hotel, and Priscilla Rich looked to be attending. Clerks at the front desk gossiped. She's just become one of the biggest supporters of the protection of animals in the world. In a broad leopard print hat and trench coat, Rich seemed to be the one being protected by the pair of cheetahs walking ahead of her on leashes. Well, that's one way to spend your money, I suppose. If she's come to hear Wonder Woman, she'd better hurry. In her swank hotel room, the now-nude Priscilla Rich knelt by the body of one of her cheetahs. She stroked its fur and offered a prayer as she took a ceremonial dagger to the big cat, marking her face with its blood. I call with your spirit. I call with your blood to make a way for me. Blood for spirit, flesh for eyes, so that the cheetah can be reborn. In a ballroom downstairs, Wonder Woman gave the gathered female fans an empowering motivational speech about bettering the world. Outside in the bushes, Priscilla Rich stalked, wearing the skin of her feline companion. The Legion of Doom's membership had begun working to vastly improve the world as we knew it through charity and scientific breakthroughs. They also publicly attacked the character of the Justice League of America, while privately attempting to murder the superheroes in their secret identities. Having finished her convention speech, Princess Diana walked backstage, where she sensed Priscilla. Who's Priscilla? The cheetah answered, as she plunged from above. Snarling, the villainess slashed Diana's left cheek with her claws. Listen to me, Priscilla. We don't have to fight. What's wrong with you? Diana defended herself against additional cuts with her bulletproof bracelets as she stripped off her diplomatic robes to reveal her costume underneath. I swear, Priscilla, I will help you. You've given yourself over the dark gods again. Why? I don't understand. It doesn't have to be this way. Wonder Woman loosed her lasso of truth, but it fell to catch her foe, who tore at the right side of the Amazon princess's face. Wonder Woman fell to the ground on her side, a tear in her eye. This is wrong. Have to get to the JLA satellite. What's going on? Hira, help me. The first name I ever knew was Daughter. I remember my mother holding me in the dawn. I remember the sea. And I remember her telling me that I was a gift and that I was beautiful. Hippolyta never wanted Diana to compete in the contest to become Wonder Woman, Amazonian ambassador and champion for the world. Against the queen's wishes, her princess donned a mask and won the contest, but also broke her mother's heart with the deceit and the dangers ahead. I swore I'd never wear a mask again. In battle with the cheetah, Wonder Woman's face had been slashed open in three places by claws dipped in the centaur's poison called Heracles' Lament. Cheetah had exchanged some of her own blood for it, from the goddess of the underworld Persephone. 
Princess Diana struggled against the claws and fangs at her backside until she reached her lasso of truth and ensnared her foe. A tear fell from Priscilla Rich's eyes her humanity was briefly restored, but the cat soon loosed itself from the leash. Wonder Woman had repeatedly reached out to Priscilla, trying to help, but failing that, she kicked the kitty across the alley. The cheetah fled, but Diana could already feel an unmaking sickness within herself. Meanwhile, Giganta was responsible for two attempts on the Adam's life before receiving a small cup of it. The Mighty Might then contacted Wonder Woman in her invisible jet, who explained the situation and asked that he join her at a secret league meeting place. Diana then landed in a jungle and used her lasso of truth to guide her through an illusory stone wall into a cave. As it turned out, this was the Bat Cave, now infested by jungle vines and other greenery. The amazing Amazon found the Dark Knight bound to a tree and learned this was Poison Ivy's doing. Attacked by a giant Venus flytrap and thorn-firing roses, Wonder Woman commented, How much like men with guns you are, Poison Ivy, to no small offense. Creepers crawling on Diana, the villainous warned, You snap one of those vines, and I'll snap your neck. By the way, I like the new look. The Amazon princess tore herself loose, and freed her ally besides. Batman unexpectedly began electrocuting Diana with special gauntlets. Her fresh facial wounds from the cheetah, glowing orange against the blue arc. The Amazon looped her lasso around the Cape Crusader's neck. Ivy cackled. Is it too much to hope that you'll kill each other? It was, as a spiritually freed Batman cold cocked her. Wonder Woman survived the attack and everyone was loaded onto the invisible jet, while flying a lassoed but mentally liberated Batman to the outskirts of the Fortress of Solitude and in her invisible jet. Wonder Woman received late word from Doc Magnus and the rebuilt Red Tornado about the Cape Crusader's mischief while mind-controlled. While the pair waited for Superman's arrival to unlock the door, other heroes began to gather outside. The Flash asked Wonder Woman about the damage dealt to her face. Cheetah scars are nothing, Barry. Somehow our enemies discovered who we are. This led the Flash to be concerned about the welfare of his wife, but the arriving Captain Marvel and Superman warned that mental domination awaited the Scarlet Speedster if he struck out on his own. Instead, the world's greatest heroes stepped into Superman's parlor to plan the response as a team. Wonder Woman attended a meeting where Batman laid out all the information collected about the Legion of Doom's plot. Afterward, Captain Marvel gave Wonder Woman a hug and asked what had happened to her. We are both beings of magic, Bill. This is also where we are most vulnerable. And I've been cursed. I'm going to die from the same poison that killed Hercules. The centaur's blood? But where Hercules' death returned him to the glory which was his by right of birth, I am returning to my origins. These scars are baking me from within. I was clay once, formed by my mother's hands. The goddess made me real in answer to my mother's prayer. I am becoming unreal again. I don't have much time left. Batman was finally freed of the mind-controlling worms and returned the lasso of truth with a thank you. Of course, Bruce. I'm glad you're back. Soon after, the League learned their supporting casts, including Steve Trevor, had been kidnapped. Further, they were held captive by mind-controlled teen heroes, including Wonder Girl Donna Troy. Deep within a bleak and dismal swamp, hidden beneath its murky waters, lies the headquarters of the most sinister villains of all time. The Legion of Doom. The meeting will come to order. The Legion of Doom is now in session. It is the purpose of the Legion to align our infamous forces against the powers of good and defeat them, leaving us the rulers of the world. To do this, we have gathered together the 13 most ruthless villains on Earth. A frigid Captain Cold. The sinister mind of Sinestro. The awesome Bizarro. 
and Solomon Grundy. The cunning cheetah and the super intelligent computer android Brainiac. Black Manta and Grodd the gorilla. The toy man and the humorous but sinister Riddler. The feminine yet ferocious Giganta and the hideous Scarecrow. <laughs> Not to mention the evil genius and brilliant leadership of myself, Lex Luthor. From Bruce Wayne's private files in the bad computer. Nothing is known about Giganta except that she somehow evolved from an ape by technology that originated in Gorilla City. I do not yet know if there is a Grodd connection. Giganta's aggression suggests that she is not a citizen of Gorilla City, as Solovar and all the denizens of Gorilla City are dedicated to peace. Her ability to manipulate her size suggests powers similar to those of the Atom. Perhaps he'll, one day, have to face her. I'm not sure Ray has it in him to strike her. I'll have to impress upon Ray the fact that she's a gorilla, and evil. I will have to ask the Flash for an update for this file. For years, you seem to be the only human being with knowledge of Gorilla City and its geography. Perhaps you can help me further understand this enemy. At the Hall of Doom, Giganta was dressed in a black evening gown for a formal celebration of the Legion of Doom's presumed victory. This is a costly and compromised war. You are like me, but you must disguise yourself as one of them. It disgusts me to look at you. As Gorilla Grodd continued to lecture her, soon enough the Hall of Doom was raided by heroes garbed in protective armor against Brainiac's miniature mind-controlling robotic worms. Wonder Woman's was especially hideous among a motley collection of fashion faux pas and further couture demerits for Giganta destroying her elegant wear in favor of growing into her usual leopard print. At least Giganta was in the fight for the duration, whereas Cheetah joined other lesser legionnaires in being tied up by Plastic Man, literally. Outside, possessed teen heroes, including Wonder Girl, fought the Doom Patrol. Donna choked Elastigirl with her lasso. Wonder Woman spent some time tangled up in Clayface before he was called away on another matter, and Cheetah managed to evacuate to the city she controlled via transport tube. Metamorpho, Red Tornado, and Martian Manhunter all teamed up on Giganta, but she would not fall, and instead took the battle outside with Hawkman and Hawkgirl joining the fray. Green Lantern John Stewart freed everyone from Brainiac's mind-controlled bugs, including Wonder Girl. Giganta persevered until Elastigirl sucker punched her. Wonder Woman didn't visibly contribute to the burly brawl, and it even looked like Superman had to free her from rubble at one point. The armored Amazon almost tangled with Solomon Grundy, but Green Lantern's destruction of Brainiac's mind-controlling technology removed the need. Wonder Woman was consoled by the rescued Steve Trevor, but did not remove her armor. Per Princess Diana's standard operating procedure, Donna Troy was nowhere near her. Wonder Girl joined the Teen Titans and other heroes in liberating the innocents trapped in Scarecrow's creepy city instead. I had the team that goes to Cheetah City. Superman should not have put me in charge of this. I don't know how long I have left. How long before the centaur's poison undoes the blessings of the gods? Hawkgirl, Hawkman, Batgirl, The Flash, and Plastic Man went with Wonder Woman to the African-style plane. But she sent them away to evacuate. Diana sensed that they were being hunted, and wished to draw out and distract the cheetah while the others did good. The former Priscilla Rich lunged at the former Amazing Amazon, tearing her armor. Diana removed her helmet to show the poison's handiwork, giving her cracked obsidian skin like molten rock and a wicked case of alopecia. You can't hurt me anymore, Priscilla. Did you really think I would be patient forever? Did you really think I would let you take away the very people I left Paradise Island to serve? Did you, Cheetah? See what she did there? See, Brainiac was going to turn every one of the cities into Kaluan organic robot thingies, and Diana had all this compassion for Priscilla's mental breakdown. But then the villainess crossed the line, and Diana called her by her evil name, and ooh, sick burn. 
Also, Diana blocked one swipe of Cheetah's claws with her bracelets, then headbutted her unconscious, implying that Cheetah was a wimp who only succeeded in the initial poisoning through Diana's misplaced grace. Way to neuter the kitty cat. The Flash helped Wonder Woman walk across a plastic man bridge as they led the exodus from Cheetah City. We'll stop this curse, Diana. We always do. We'll find a way. You don't have to die. They're safe, Flash. Don't worry about me. They're safe. Nine pages later, 101 reappeared in a spread located on Paradise Island Beach. Diana had suffered death by reversion to clay number 34. So Queen Hippolyta prayed to the gods, who restored Diana as part of a fresh mound of pale clay, leaving a black old husk behind. If the subtext is troubling, add to it the fact that Superman had spent the prior two pages reviving a helpless Zatanna through CPR after she nearly died in outer space. Were any male heroes rescued from certain death by heroines? Heck, there weren't even any non-female heroes at the brink of death in the rest of the series. Aquaman had a chunk of his brain carved out, just grew it back while laying on an operating room table. I should also mention that Diana number two was, of course, naked, and that neither Steve Trevor nor Donna Troy were present at the revival ceremony, because it's all about maintaining the integrity of the character with these guys. I guess the moral of the story was that Diana was naive to think Cheetah's soul was salvageable, so once Diana was willing to give Priscilla up to damnation, the princess could herself be saved. When you talk about comics, does it sound something like this? Look, you can't put the Superman number 77s with the 200s. They haven't even discovered red kryptonite yet. And you, uh, you can't put the number 98s with the 300s. Lori the Morris hasn't even been introduced. Or maybe it sounds a little more like this. You think Mighty Mouse could beat up Superman? What are you, cracked? Why not? I saw the other day he was carrying five elephants in one hand. Boy, you don't know nothing. Mighty Mouse is a cartoon. Superman is a real guy. No way a cartoon could beat up a real guy. Yeah, maybe you're right. Would be a good fight, though. Hello, I am the constantly caffeinated Clinton Robinson, and my comics discussions can go to both extremes, but generally fall somewhere in between. On the Coffee and Comics podcast, I will review comic stories and other comics-related topics that can be enjoyed over a cup of coffee. So pour the coffee, or other beverage of choice, and join me on the Coffee and Comics podcast, available on iTunes and coffeeandcomicspodcast.blogspot.com. There's a number of themes running through Alex Ross's handling of Wonder Woman that I'd like to use this episode to explore. If you listen to the Idlehead of Diablo podcast, official tie-in episode to JL May 2017, you know I was very positive about Alex Ross's work on The Martian Manhunter. Part of the reason this show is only an unofficial tie-in is because I feel the opposite is true with regard to The Amazing Amazon, and I didn't want to bring down the mood of the fan event. The truth is, I feel Alex Ross may have been one of the single most damaging creators to handle Wonder Woman in the modern age. The primary reason for this is Kingdom Come, a book I was very excited for when the first issue came out, and very much over by the last issue. My chief complaint about that book was its decision to cast Superman as a tragic figure caught between the extremes of Batman and Wonder Woman, the latter having embraced her warrior side to the nth degree. Diana was often depicted in grotesque eagle-themed armor with a sword in her hand, having grown impatient with man's world and ready to bring it to heel by violent bloody force. That portrayal makes sense in the context of the needs of the story Ross and Mark Wade had chosen to tell, so long as you don't know anything about Wonder Woman and are willing to ruthlessly warp her in service to a tepid swipe of Alan Moore's Twilight of the Gods proposal. Kingdom Come was not the first instance of Diana's martial heritage being brought to the fore, but it was a highly visible and extremely popular outlier in that area that has increasingly become a norm for the character. Once Kingdom Come hit big, creators who never previously knew what to do with the princess suddenly realized that there was an audience perfectly willing to pay for a super-powered Red Sonia, conveniently timed during the bad girl fad of the late 90s. 
Why bother with nuanced characterization or unwieldy philosophy when you can just treat Wonder Woman like Stabarella, brutal mistress of might makes right? And it was especially helpful that this period was also the beginning of DC emphasizing the concept of a trinity of heroes as their greatest icons and most reliable merchandising assets. That might have been a more difficult sell if you had to portray one of those three as a woman. But if they're three badass bros and one just happens to have pendulous breasts and a G-string, any jerk-off can wrap their pea brain around that. This was the Wonder Woman Sidney Mellon could get behind, and boy would he love to. Alex Ross once drew a satirical image of Diana carrying Superman's baby to rib early Kingdom Come critic and known crank John Byrne. To drive the dig in, Ross pointed out that he'd gotten the idea of having the heroes become a couple and birth a child together from a story arc of Burns that involved Clark Kent having wet dreams about Wonder Woman and later kissing her without permission. In 1988, that was a social foul, and in 2017, it's arguably sexual assault. But Ross missed the point of the arc. Wonder Woman and Superman are a terrible couple. And while the idea of their pairing predates Byrne, it was always a fake out in those stories rather than an end game. Byrne and his collaborator on the arc, George Perez, teased bringing the heroes together romantically at a time when neither was attached to anyone as a way to address and discard that approach. Superman is ultimately fated to be with Lois Lane going back to Action Comics number 1. Wonder Woman in that time and ongoing has a hazier path, which may involve flirtations with homosexuality. But in the absence of an established female suitor, if that's a thing, Diana similarly defaults to Steve Trevor dating back to their shared first appearance. If for no other reason than a Wonder Woman-Superman coupling inevitably involves casting off or outright killing Lois Lane, a fellow feminist sister, it's just not a thing to be done. But also, as a Wonder Woman fan, her second billing and objectification of the Shadow Superman is cause for ire. In these Ross books, both Superman and Batman refer to Diana repeatedly as perfect, which is a loaded term. It's not the sort of superlative one would apply to most superheroes, and in fact, it's often used as a derogatory against all three of DC's primary trinity of heroic icons and fan circles. Too good. Not human or relatable enough. Too perfect. But here, Clark and Bruce are rendering that perfect estimation within the text itself, in relation to a heroine both have been linked to romantically in recent years. If you look at the comics, other superheroes usually speak so reverently about the Man of Steel and the Dark Knight. When one woman gets that treatment, it's usually from another superheroine. She's our icon the women's icon, but not necessarily seen as an equal to the male icons. In the rarances where male heroes speak of Diana in such terms, her physical attractiveness is almost always an element of the discussion. It begs the question of whether Diana is seen by Clark and Bruce as meeting the standards they themselves fail to reach as heroes and men, or whether she's only perfect to them within the framework of an object of desire. With so many women faced with the consequences of seeking or failing to meet some socially constructed notion of perfection, it's probably an unfortunate choice of word either way. Even worse, within the context of Batman's usage, he specifically references Diana's compatibility as a mate to Superman, and then seems to comfort himself with her having greater similarities with himself. I suspect an awful lot of people would question Batman's judgment on that assumption, and it sounds more than a bit like wishful thinking on Bruce's part as another potential suitor. It doesn't help that for much of the time Batman monologues on Wonder Woman, he seems to be reading her who's who powers and weapons section rather than offering any insights into her inner character. Never mind the sequence from Spirit of Truth where Clark Kent states Diana was seen by some as perfect, and Diana acts like a schoolgirl soaking up a compliment. I don't recognize that person. That metal one woman song we've been hearing since Dawn of Justice, its title is I Thought She Was With You, referencing the heroine solely in relation to how she connects Superman and Batman, not as a character in her own right. Diana's recently canceled duo series was titled Superman Wonder Woman. In Kingdom Come, she's Superman's major domo and chief negative influence, not the leader of her own faction. In Spirit of Truth, instead of discussing her problems in man's world with a character from within her own sphere, she's the only hero in the Ross Dini tabloids to need to seek guidance from another superhero, Clark Kent. 
His advice was essentially, take up a secret identity where you wear glasses and generally be more like me. Even in her own book with her name in the title referencing one of her iconic but increasingly misused or forgotten powers, Wonder Woman is defined by who she is relative to other, usually male heroes. That in itself is at least an improvement over the stories when she's not even regarded as a real human being, also a facet of Alex Ross's projects. Wonder Woman's origin is one of comics' greatest which is why it was patently ridiculous to change it for the Just League cartoon in the New 52. At the same time, the decision was understandable, given the inability of creators like Ross to see infant Dianas being formed in the image of a baby before being given true life by the Divine as the end point of her being anything less than human. Just as you don't see many stories where average people are reduced to sperm and egg, it only makes sense to regress Diana to clay or turn her into a living statue if you see her as a thing rather than a living being. During this crossover, a podcaster mentioned that of course Red Tornado was torn to pieces in this story, as happens in many stories, because that's what you do to androids in comics. You break them, reprogram them, weaponize them. They're always utility objects first, not people. You can't dismember Batman, because the audience won't accept him as a superhuman or a zombie or leave him eternally resting in pieces. When it's okay to do that to Wonder Woman, she's not on equal footing with Superman. She's just a step up from a robot. That's not how you treat comics' greatest heroine, and it's not a positive reflection of a creator's view on women in general. What of Diana's mission to man's world? Her approach is to teach people the Amazonian way of peace, loving kindness, and understanding, as well as encourage the betterment of oneself and one's surroundings through her example. What does it say about Diana when she keeps failing or betraying her mission in Alex Ross projects? In Kingdom Come, she's stoking the fires of feudalism in a war between super beings that leads to mass deaths and near destruction of the world. Spirit of Truth is all about Diana grimly assessing her lack of progress in improving modern civilization while downplaying her modest accomplishments, despite saving hundreds of lives over the course of the story. Did you notice Diana has virtually no victories throughout Justice? She gives a speech where she's savaged by the cheetah, then spends the rest of the story anticipating her own death. She temporarily frees Batman from mind control, but someone else provides the permanent solution. She isn't a major player in any of the big fights. She fails to redeem Priscilla Rich and her easy dominance of the cheetah in the final fight makes it seem like she gave the villainess the time and opportunity to poison her in pursuit of that goal, which only salts the wound. In Spirit of Truth, she's ineffectual as a diplomat at both the macro and micro level, often settling for vigilanteism. She's only a supposed Wonder Woman who fails to make any significant connections to any of the women in that story. Perhaps most galling is the fact that Diane has done some real good, but because of her equivocation and lack of confidence, her triumphs are needlessly rendered fearic. Batman, a more consistently defined and popular superhero, is nowhere near as impactful in his world as Wonder Woman, but he's seen as a champion because of how his efforts are framed in his stories. Diane is a victim of unreasonable expectations and a need to write her as a Marvel-style, feet-of-clay type. She isn't that, and forcing her into that mold is a grave disservice to the heroine. People are drawn to Batman because of his confidence and determination. Why would they want a fragile, questioning, compromised, and even outright broken Amazon princess? By the way, shouldn't we be talking about how much of Alex Ross's aesthetic can be seen in the Zack Snyder DC Cinematic Universe? The lighting, the camera angles, the fetishistic slow-mo, the muted colors, the monochromatic tints, and especially the pervasive need to take children's escapist morality plays and turn them into ambivalent, ultra-grim, violent, pseudo-realistic epic confrontations with overbearing and obvious Christian imagery involving a specific fixation on revelations. Worse, for all their pretentious illusions, aren't both Ross's and Snyder's stories exceptionally shallow and not a little dumb once you scratch ever so slightly against the surface? It's a classic comic book fanboy cliche to play up the modern mythology angle on funny books, putting on airs of great pretense and conferring enormous weight of subtext upon men and tights punching each other in textbook male adolescent power fantasies. 
Okay, fine, I'll play. Then what does it really mean when a pagan foreign heroine is depicted as dissatisfied and disoriented in the midst of images seemingly lifted out of a Sunday school magazine of Diana being happy and barefoot and betogad while petting a doe in a field? Why would a creator with no significant record of homosexual representation consistently push a heteronormative dynamic on Wonder Woman by having her stories revolve around masculine presences? How do I interpret an insistence on reversing decades of progress and representation to enforce the supposed iconic state of the DC universe circa the mid-1970s when they come to a still almost absolutely dominated by straight white males on the page and behind the scenes. How come Alex Ross has done plenty for Captain Marvel and Plastic Man, but not so much for the ethnic Super Friends, Isis, or Black Lightning? Ross's influence clearly holds sway over decision makers at DC like Jeff Johns. So when the artist whose books are perennials at libraries champions a retrograde mentality, is he doing more harm than good? When your creative vision is insistence on making comics Bronze Age again, and that era wasn't so great for our amazing Amazon, can you really be counted as an ally? We received social media love from Alex, Dr. Ange, Blue Girl, Brian Kim, Brody's Kitchen, Bruno Weber, Closed Out Comics, Code Electro, Coffee and Comics Blog, Columbus Comics Corner, Comic Reflections, Comics in the Golden Age, David Ace Gutierrez, DCU Movie Page, Dinah Bat, Dimitri Pimenov, Dr. G Nerdologist, Ed Moore Jr. at Indie Comics Fan, Marvel Bronze Age and Miskatonic, Eli, Inigo Montoya, Fits and Starts Podcast, For the Non-Discerning Reader, Gord Tolton, Hicks, Hulkling All Yeah, I'm the Gun, Jake and Tom Conquer Podcast, Janella Dubois, Jeffrey Brown, Joseph Crawford, Justice First Dawn, Kara Zorel, Keith G. Baker, Kitten Archive, King Size Comics Giant Size Fun Podcast, Mario Luther Lang, Mark Danvers, Martin Gray, Matches Baloney, Men, Nethead, The Olympian, Punch Like a Girl Podcast, Rad Adventures Network, Relatively Geeky, Richard Field, Rob at Speculum Fight, Ryan Daly, the Satin Tights Podcast, Sean Phillips, Silver and Gold Podcast, Siskoid, Slangwood Resists, Style Icon, Writer and Editor Tom Pyre, who I've always been a fan of, Tony Acero, Trekker Talk Podcast, Warlord Worlds Podcast, The Wonder Woman Warrior for Peace Podcast, and Xenozoic Files. Android of Episode 13, thanks again for a great episode. I had seen the cover of Wonder Woman number 63 before, but wasn't aware of the significance of the I'm Back. I didn't know about the months off. I didn't know the special even existed. As you say, Bolin's covers are fantastic and he does a great job with Diana. I ended up getting the latter part of the Master Lobes run because of Boland. His cover of Wonder Woman number 88 with Superman was so fantastic I bought the issue. I then went back and bought the prior handful of issues and collected the book moving forward. Certainly in recent times, Wonder Woman has had a murderer's row of cover artists. Boland, Hughes, J.G. Jones, and I'd put Aaron Lepresti in there too. Count Drunkler wrote, Great episode. I am woefully ignorant of the Messner Loeb's era of Wonder Woman, only having read a handful of the issues around Zero Hour when Deodato was on art. This story sounds great, if for no other reason than I've wanted to see Wonder Woman fight Deathstroke for a long time. Specifically, I've wanted to see a very one-sided fight between them. About ten years ago, I indulged in a flight of fancy and started plotting out the Wonder Woman stories I would tell if ever given the chance to write the character for a year or two. One of the stories involved Diana being the ever-loving-ish out of Slade. I was hoping some more Loeb's issues would get the trade paperback treatment when her movie comes out, but I haven't seen any evidence of that. I suppose I'll have to get them on Comixology. Anyway, good episode as always. Blue Girl wrote, Listening to Diablo Frank go off on the Who is Wonder Woman trade paperback. Trekker Talk noted, Diablo Frank asks Who is Wonder Woman on the latest episode of Diana Prince. Siskoid uh, on Back on 13 wrote, I didn't know Perez was sort of pushed out, but while War of the Gods was a dreaded bore, and I loved the what-ifery of Armageddon 2001 until they switched out the ending, of course. I could see how that was a big slight to a creator who was once one of their cash cows. Interesting stuff as usual. Can't wait for the movie and your reaction to it. Lonely Heart Marty says he'll walk out of Diana's reaction to No Man's Land isn't I am no man. 
no matter how many times we tell him Lord of the Rings already did that joke. Finally, Ryan Daly tweeted out congratulations to Michael Bailey's podcast, the Green Lantern cast, Dr. Ange, and myself for making a list of the 75 top comics blogs. Chad Volkman at LanternCast said thanks to Ryan and that it's phenomenal to be included with such talent. Uh, the site is blog.feedspot.com forward slash comic blogs, top 75 comic blogs and websites for comics fans, updated on April 5th, 2017. The best comic blogs from thousands of top comic blogs in our index using search and social metrics. At number 70 was the Diana Prince as the new Wonder Woman blog. And I, I too am very pleased with the company I kept. Kind of shocked that I turned up on one of those lists. Wonder Woman is the copyright of DC Comics Entertainment. This is a non-profit fan-produced podcast. No infringement of any copyrights are intended. And where copyrighted material appears, it is believed protected under fair use. If you enjoy the show, please feel free to leave a comment on the Diana Prince is the new Wonder Woman blog, the Rolled Spine podcast blog. Write to me at emailofdiabolu at yahoo.com featuring two underscores. Or just hit me up on Twitter at commanderblanks or at Rolled Spine. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful week.